Good morning. Please uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews 8. We'll mostly be in that passage this morning. And uh, again, we didn't coordinate the songs, but um, they were perfect for the message. All sufficient merit. Um, Just one of the promises we'll see today. it is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. And that's something <clears throat> that we just really, we really need to keep reminding ourselves of. Um, but oftentimes we talk about how we see divine intervention in our uh, service planning, uh, when yet we don't really coordinate sometimes the songs and what's being taught. Um, and that's kind of what happened today even. So really, Hebrews 8 wasn't going to be on this Communion Sunday, it was going to be last week, but how things work um, uh, in God's divine intervention, there was another uh, um, section of, of Hebrews 7 that God laid on uh, Eric's heart to, to preach on, and so um, Hebrews 8 fell on today, which is um, perfect as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And why I say that is because Hebrews 8 is the first chapter in Hebrews where the writer introduces us to the new covenant. And uh, you'll probably see where I'm heading. Luke 22 says this, speaking about Jesus. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Lost my place. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was clear when he offered up his body on the cross, and poured out his blood so that we might be forgiven of our sins, he was inaugurating and establishing a new covenant. And when we gather to eat the bread, like we are today, that symbolizes his body that was broken, and drink from the cup that points to his blood that was shed, we are remembering and celebrating and experiencing all the blessings that are now ours because of this new covenant in Christ, a covenant in which all who believe in Jesus are members. And my prayer today, and I've been praying about uh, this throughout the week, is that as you all listen to what the writer is telling us in Hebrews 8, it will have a profound impact and blessing on you as we close the service today um, with our communion time. But I want to do more today than just give us more facts, um, give us more head knowledge um, about a better priesthood and a better covenant and better promises. Um, in Matthew 28, Jesus gave, um, gave us a commission, and he said, do this. He said, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And uh, I don't know about you, but how many of you oftentimes when you hear that Matthew 28 passage, you hear it like this, um, teaching them all that I commanded you. And somehow like that little phrase, to obey, is it's like left out. It's like we, we forget about that part. But it actually says, um, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And I know sometimes, especially when going through a, a book like Hebrews, where the writer is, in essence, taking the first 10 chapters to lay a foundation or a groundwork um, to set up the last three chapters, or, which are more action-oriented. Sometimes, as teachers, we can we maybe can get um, lost into just disseminating information. And so we 
uh, don't want to do that. Uh, but to that end, today I'm going to try to give us some answers to the so what questions, some answers to what this means for us as believers in Jesus. And thankfully, I drew the straw to get Hebrews 8. And so I start with this softball setup question that starts Hebrews 8. Um, but before I do, I just wanted to point out what Eric finished with last week as a reminder. Eric did a great job pointing out to us the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. We saw in chapter 7, verse 24, that Jesus' priesthood is eternal. We saw in verse 25 that he is able to completely save those who come to him. And this is a pop quiz. Does anyone remember the word for that? Save to the uttermost. Yes, and <clears throat> I mean, that's an interesting translation word, um, but it almost sounds like just the pinnacle, right? I mean, the uttermost. And uh, another translation says it this way, once and forever. And then another translation says it this way, fully and completely. And I think of that song we sang, All Sufficient Merit, it is done, it is finished, no more debt I owe. I mean, however you want to slice it, it's, it's just saved to the hilt. I mean, um, and then we saw in verses 26 and 27 that Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices for himself because he is holy. And finally, in verse 27, we saw that Jesus' priesthood is superior because it did not come from the law, but from God's oath. Now here comes the softball set up for me in Hebrews 8.1, and it goes like this. We'll read it together. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That's, that's a great, uh, it's great for me to start out with, right? I don't need to, need to explain it. It tells me right here. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent also known as tabernacle um, in some translations, talking about the tabernacle Moses built in the wilderness, that the Lord set up, not man. And the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That one's talking about the one in heaven. If you're like me, I just love it when a writer leads me to the well um, to drink to where there's no hidden meaning. There's no hidden meaning here. He flat out says, now this is the point of what I've been talking about. You know, we've been going through all these connections to the Old Testament. I mean, we spent three weeks on going into the depths of Melchizedek. And um, we've talked about what Jesus' qualifications were. And now he's saying, now this is the point of all that. And I believe the writer means for this summary statement, this point to have a powerful impact on those reading and hearing this message. We have a high priest, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Why would this be such an impactful statement, do you think, to the Jewish believers that this letter was written to? Um, well, at the time this was written, there was still a functioning priesthood and an operating temple in Jerusalem. And the Jewish people could boast in that. They could boast in an impressive temple. It, it, was, it was definitely an impressive temple. The Jewish people had a high priest who could offer gifts and sacrifices on their behalf. They could boast of a great lawgiver in their heritage, Moses. They could boast of a rich and historical, deeply important rituals and feasts. So you can just imagine the ridicule and persecution these Jewish believers may have received 
from other Jewish friends or family members for leaving such a great heritage. They might have heard things like this. Why are you leaving our religion? Our religion is better than yours. We have a majestic temple. You guys have to meet in secret places. We have historic rituals. You guys have a loaf of bread and some pressed grapes. The writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Jewish believers to persevere, as we've talked about, and not turn back to their old ways, not turn back to the old covenant, by explaining that in all reality, what we have is better. And you've seen that word number of times in the past chapters. He's saying our counter-argument to their Jewish religion is this. You guys have the shadow. We have the substance. You guys have the copy. We have the real thing. You guys have a high priest in Jerusalem. We have a high priest in heaven. And that's their counter-argument to those who would um, look down on them for leaving their heritage. In preparing messages, Sometimes I come across interesting facts um, that are like these blow-your-mind moments of how awesome God is. And here's one of those mind-blowing facts that I came across. Um, So most scholars say that the book of Hebrews was written in the mid-60s A.D. And um, so here is the writer, um, not knowing what the future holds. And he's writing and doing his best to convince these Jewish believers, like I said, to persevere in the faith and not turn back to putting their confidence in their religion and the traditions of the Jewish faith, not put their, their um, confidence in, in the glorious temple or the priesthood. And do you know what happened in 70 AD, just a few years later, after this book was written? The Romans destroyed the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and the priesthood and the sacrificial system ended. And did the writer of Hebrews know that this was going to happen? No. But God knew. So therefore, there was no more argument from the Jewish people to their ones that left their religion to say, we have a better... No, we don't. We have high... No, we don't. We don't have these things anymore. Um, And that's just... To me, that's amazing that... You know, at the end of this chapter, you know, that last verse uh, we talked about... Uh, that was read was, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as, oh no, I'm sorry. The, the, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And in some ways, I feel like God might have made it a little bit easier on the new Jewish believers by having the temple destroyed and the priesthood wiped away. Um, it, it made the obsolescence Uh, go away pretty quick. Um, Okay, back to verse 1. And I'm getting cotton mouth. So, (laughs) Notice that it speaks of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of God. Um, We saw that before in uh, back in chapter 1, verse 3. And I'll quote that to you. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You probably heard this before. There were no chairs in the tabernacle where the priest offered sacrifices, which really just symbolized that there was, it was a continuous work. There was not to be any sitting down. Whereas Jesus entered into the true tabernacle, and the work was completed. Therefore, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, not only implying that the work was finished, but he also stated that on the cross when he said, it is finished. In the Old Covenant, 
each repeated sacrifice only served as a reminder that none of the sacrifices resulted in a finished salvation. In other words, people came back year after year, um, some many times a year, and, and the coming back just validated that there was no single sacrifice that was all satisfying. But Jesus' sacrifice was all satisfying, once and for all. It had the effect of propitiation to God, and I'm going to give you a definition of that. <clears throat> Not that I made up, but you know, you get from a scholar here. Okay, what that means is it averted the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin. And how did it do that? By God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So that is what Jesus' sacrifice w- was. It was all satisfying because it had the effect of uh, propitiation to God, which means, again, I'll say it again, it averted the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Um, <clears throat> how many of you uh, know the dictionary definition of whippersnapper? Um, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> at one time I was a young and inexperienced whippersnapper, and um, and the definition in the dictionary is this. Um, a young and inexperienced person considered presumptuous or overconfident. Well, as a young whippersnapper, when I was a young man and a young Christian, um, I borrowed a truck from an older brother uh, in the church, and um, his name was Mike Steele. And I still remember this um, because God taught me a good lesson from it. Well, when using his truck, um, I happened to put a small dent in his bumper. Uh, So when I returned it, I said I was sorry, and as a young whippersnapper, I presumed that that would be sufficient. Um, After all, he was an established family man who made more money than me, so surely he could fix it if he wanted to. And and besides that, the truck was old anyway, and I thought, like, well, who would want to fix that anyway? It's just a small dent. Um, but in other words, I never offered to make things right uh, by offering to pay to get it fixed. So as a good older brother in Christ, he confronted me in my Christian immaturity about my attitude and how it was not Christ-like. And the point is this, he would not have been satisfied if I had said, I'm sorry about it every day for five years. He would have only been satisfied if I had offered to fix it. Similarly, the Old Covenant never had a mechanism for satisfying forever. And the writer of Hebrews is shouting to the readers, Jesus is better than your former religion because he takes away sin forever. It is finished. God is satisfied. I don't remember how that story ended. I don't remember if I paid to get his truck fixed or... Or I just told him I would, and then he was satisfied, and that ended it. Um, Well, the writer meant for these truths to be a major encouragement to the Hebrew believers at the time to keep on keeping on and to not turn back to their old ways, their old religion, the old covenant. But what are in these truths that teach us to obey? Yours and my high priest is in the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, living and always making intercession for you, as we learned last week. So he is seated 
but he's not doing nothing up there. He is always making intercession for you. Do you sin? Of course. But then does that sin cause you to lose valuable days and weeks and months not serving the Lord because you are struggling with a guilty conscience? I'm sad to say I've been there more times in my life than I want to admit. But that's not obeying. How can you obey God in this truth? Well, stop with the inward focus and the self-condemnation with the, I can't serve you today, God, because I'm so guilty. And believe the truth of what it means that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, always making intercession for you. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, but Jesus is always defending us before the throne of God against Satan's accusations against us by saying, that sin was covered, that sin was covered, oh yes, that one again, that was covered, again, that's covered, again, that's covered, infinity. I like how one translation states Romans 8, 1 and 2, it says this, no condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Jesus Christ. For the spiritual principle of life in Christ lifts me out of the old vicious circle of sin and death. Then why do we choose to stay in that vicious circle? In fact, did you know that the blood of Christ cleansed your conscience for a reason in order to serve God? I'll show you. You can just flip over if you want to Hebrews 9.14. It says this, How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I I, I mean, I can identify, I know you're probably thinking like, well, you say, I still feel guilty. Well, God says, son of mine, daughter of mine, walk by faith, not by sight, not by feelings. I cleansed your conscience to serve me Get up off the floor because I have kingdom work for you to do. That is how we obey this scripture here. The reality is that there are many, many Christians who generally love Jesus, but the way in which they live their lives is as if they are still trapped in the old covenant. And that's why it's important to continue here. We could just stop here and say, well, the new covenant is better than the old covenant. But I want us to get that the new covenant is better for us in terms of how we live our lives. God wants us to be a people who live in the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant. I mean, I I appreciated Eric's prayer because he was praying that, that, you know, sometimes we're depressed and discouraged and we are not living in those blessings and benefits of the new covenant. Do you think the disciples were taken by surprise when Jesus was sitting with the disciples eating the Passover meal and then he takes a cup and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I mean, I don't know. If you just think, I don't know how scholarly they were about things, these, <laughs> these guys, but um, I, I feel like if I was sitting in that room, I would have just gone, like, what did you say? I, but this was significant. Jesus initiated the new covenant at that time. And as verse 6 says, it's a better covenant that has been enacted on better promises. 
What's so good about it? Well, the writer of Hebrews is glad that you asked. Uh, I just could hear it in your spirit. So I want to spend the major portion of the rest of the time we have together talking about these things. So I'll quickly talk through verses 3 through 6, and I'll let David cover more about the tabernacle on earth and in heaven in chapter 9, since it goes into detail about that. Um, In verse 3, it talks about how it was necessary for our high priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer, and of course, that's his own blood. He makes the point in verses 4 and 5 that if Jesus were a high priest on earth, he would be disqualified from being a priest. Why? Well, by virtue of the fact that his earthly lineage comes through the tribe of Judah, and no one from the tribe of Judah could be a priest. It had to be from the tribe of Levi. So he's making all these points to lead us to this main point in verse 6. So let's read verse 6 together. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. This is the meat of chapter 8. The superiority of the covenant that Jesus inaugurated at the Last Supper versus the Old Covenant that was inaugurated through Moses at Mount Sinai in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And did you catch at the end of verse 6 one of the reasons why the New Covenant is superior? It's because the promises that are connected to the New Covenant are better. So what are we talking about here? What are some of the promises that came with the Old Covenant? Okay, Which we could also refer to as the Mosaic Covenant because it came through Moses. But let's just take a quick look at some of these promises of the Old Covenant. Um, I'll take some of these out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28.1. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Wow. That's amazing. Who wouldn't want that, right? Oh, but wait, it starts like this. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments. Hmm. Okay, well, <clears throat> here's another one. Deuteronomy 28, 11. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Oh, but wait, it starts like this. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments. Hmm, again. Well, here's a great one, Deuteronomy 28, 3-6. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Thank you, God. I don't think I need anything more than this. I mean, I was talking to Brother Chris the other day, and if he had this blessing, those raccoons would never bother his blueberry bushes again. Oh, but wait, it starts like this. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Is that the problem, Chris? You're not? Uh, hmm. Are you starting to see a theme? Well, three obvious things jump out at me. One, the, these promises are all for this life. Number two, they are bilateral. And what I mean by that is 
These promises are conditional, and one of those conditions is based on my obedience. And then number three, I don't see anything that is going to give me power to keep my end of the deal. Verse 7 says this, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You know what the problem was with the first covenant? Me. You. People who have nothing more to rely on than sheer willpower to keep their end of the deal. And sorry, friends, as you know, our willpower can only go so far. Perhaps only the 50 and above crowd will know what I'm talking about here, but <clears throat> there was an old show I watched as a kid called The Six Million Dollar Man and uh, about this astronaut that had an accident. Um, and the government, in essence, rebuilt him and uh, with robotic, mechanical limbs and eyes. And now he could do amazing things that he could never have done before. <clears throat> and the opening phrase went something like this, along with the theme song. Da, 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 da. Remember that? Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. He was transformed with power generated by machines. The new covenant is better because it comes along and with it comes genuine Holy Spirit transformational power for our lives. And that's a remarkable change from the old covenant. So we've talked about how the old covenant was inadequate because the sacrifices year after year could never fully secure forgiveness for the people. We talked about how the old covenant was unable to supply the power that people needed to fulfill and obey it. And lastly, as we move to verse 8, where the writer is quoting from Jeremiah 31, we see that God never intended for the old covenant to last forever. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting these Jewish believers to know that this new covenant was always part of God's plan. And so he is going to show them this from Jeremiah's prophecy. Let's look at it in verses 8 through 12. <clears throat> As he quotes from this passage in Jeremiah 31, it's just one of several Old Testament passages actually that speak to us about the nature and the glory of the new covenant before it was ever established. We're going to look at another one from Ezekiel a little bit later. So let's read verses 8 through 12. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel <clears throat> and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So let's just take a look at it piece by piece. Verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Oh, wait a minute, time out. I'm sorry that I got your hopes up about the new covenant. Close your Bibles, the service is over. This isn't for us, after all. <clears throat> it's for Israel and Judah. Wait a minute, open your Bibles. Maybe we should talk about this for a minute. Um, quickly flip over to Hebrews 10, 15. 
Hebrews 10.15 says this, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Who is us? It's the believers in Jesus Christ. It's the church. Also in 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul explicitly says that we, those in the church, are the ministers of the new covenant. So this is for us. So now that we got that out of the way, and before we move away from verse 8, let's not miss the very significant words, I will establish a new covenant. God didn't say, we were going to make this covenant together. He didn't say, hey, let's negotiate a new covenant. Hey, how about this? I'll throw out the first offer. You can counteroffer, and then we'll come to a decision. <clears throat> this is an important point because of the way our culture looks at faith and spirituality. For those who believe in any spirituality at all today, um, the dominant thinking is this. Each one of us makes our own covenant with God based on the inclinations of our own hearts. And most of the, I guess 100% of the time, those terms end up being whatever pleases us. You know, ever heard the pop phrase, you do you. Well, unfortunately, that has crept into faith and spirituality relative to what it means to have a relationship with God. But in reality, God puts his offer on the table and says, here is my offer. You either receive it in faith or you reject it, but we are not going to negotiate. Verse 9, I want us to catch these words, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. So verse 9 is basically saying this new covenant is different. It's new. <clears throat> it's not just a rehash of the old covenant. Um, Lisa can tell you, um, I'm a sucker uh, for pictures on advertising, and so it's a good thing that I don't do much of the grocery shopping, uh, because if I did, I'd come home with all the items um, from the store that say new and improved. Uh, but I will even admit that I can't even tell you what's different about the new and improved versions from the old versions. Um, and why is that? Well, probably because um, the company's probably made some kind of 0.00001% change in the recipe, and then they say, new and improved, so they can dupe gullible shoppers like me into buying their products with some fancy picture on the front of their packaging. Well, here's the good news. God's new covenant is not like that at all. It really is new and improved. The old covenant was dependent on your performance, your ability to keep the law, your rule keeping. The new covenant is about what Jesus has done for us on the cross once and for all to reconcile us to God. In verse 9, you can also see where it says this, they did not continue in my covenant. Perhaps the greatest thing about the new covenant is that it is not dependent on my performance, my ability to pull myself up by my bootstraps and keep rules. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I know like when we read stories in the Old Testament, you know, if you remember when um, God had Moses assemble all the people at the mountain, and he said, look, I want to speak to the people. I'm going to come down and speak to the people. Um, he said, but don't get them too close, you know, lest I consume them. Uh, so he comes down, and smoke fills the mountain, and um, 
and then they hear God speak audibly, and they're, it's just a, they feel the ground shaking, and it is so fearsome and an awesome um, experience that they're like, okay, we're Moses, you go speak to God, and then you tell us what he said. We can't, we cannot handle this. This is just too terribly awesome for us. Um, aren't you tempted to think like, man, I wish I was there. If I was there and had that experience, I'd never sin again the rest of my life. I could keep that covenant. I'd keep that covenant until the day I died. I would never break one of God's laws. Well, you probably remember what happened. It wasn't more than about two months later. I mean, not, we're talking like not, not even two months, about 40 days later. And the people, they, they took their precious metals and they melted it into a golden calf. And they, they worshipped it and said, you are our God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. That, I mean, I know that we sit here and go like, that's, I'd never do that. But, um, but that's the weakness of the Old Covenant. That's the weakness of the flesh, and God knows it. The fact is, the Old Covenant did not provide the people the power to keep the covenant. But the New Covenant does. Look at verse 10. It says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's better promise number one. When he speaks about God himself writing his law on our hearts, he means that our obedience will flow from a transformation that has occurred within us by virtue of a power that God has himself provided. And what is that power? It's the Holy Spirit that lives within us. You know, under the old covenant, nobody ever really had the Holy Spirit live inside of them like we get to have. The Spirit was... You'll read in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was with people. Um, the Spirit came upon people to empower them, but the Spirit did not indwell people. Um, do you remember when David was broken over his sin? He prayed, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is not a prayer that we should ever pray as those in the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit will never leave you when you sin. Jesus is constantly interceding for you before the Father. So what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit living in us? As Christians, we're not to be directed by external rules out here somewhere because he's taken his law and put it in our hearts and in our minds. It's a completely different dynamic, and it's so much better than the old dynamic. But do you know that there are a lot of Christians still looking for external rules. And they're ignoring what God has done in their hearts. And they, you know, these are the people asking you like, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to do about this? What do I need to do here? And they're kind of like, you can get the sense, they're not really asking you for a counsel. Um, what they're really wanting is for you to give them a rule um, that they can follow. Why do we do that? Because relying on the leading of the Holy Spirit is harder work. It oftentimes involves pressing in on Him in prayer, which takes time that honestly we don't want to give. 
We just want to go through the drive-up window of God's wisdom and say, hey, can you give me a few rules for the day? I'll try to keep those and, and I can keep going about my way. As I said, the prophet Ezekiel also spoke of this promise um, of the new, uh, of, of his laws in our heart <clears throat> in Ezekiel 36. It says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I, and heart of stone from your flesh, yeah. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. To sum up this first promise, whatever God requires of us in terms of obedience, he provides for us in terms of the Holy Spirit's internal enabling power. That is a good promise. And never forget, as members of the new covenant, we don't serve the Lord and obey for acceptance. But rather we serve the Lord and obey from acceptance. Here's promise number two. It's the promise of a personal relationship with God wherein we can experience intimate knowledge of Him. So I'll start reading in verse 10, that finish verse 10 and 11. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. God isn't just God. He's just not there. He's not simply the omnipotent, infinitely kind and generous supreme being who created and upholds all things. What we rejoice in isn't simply that he exists. Rather, he is my God. He is your God. And because of this, there is a glorious truth and promise. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never turn a deaf ear to our prayers, no matter how horrific life may become. No matter how great the loss may be, no matter how deep and penetrating the pain may feel, God will never let you go. He will never permit anything to sever you from Him or His love. And that is a great promise. I know this is a cliche phrase, but it's true. It's no longer about religion, it's about relationship. Well, under the new covenant, you and I can have a relationship with God that they could not have with God under the Old Covenant. So this begs the question, why would someone not want this? Well, I, I think a partial answer to that is because <clears throat> they don't know about or have a misunderstanding of the third promise in this passage, which is the promise of final and complete forgiveness of their sins. Let's read it in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is, this is, I mean, the promises just keep getting better, to be honest with you. How is that different from the Old Covenant? Okay, how is that promise different from the Old Covenant? Well, remember what he said earlier in this letter? You probably don't. I'll, I just, I'll remind you, because I, I know what I'm going to say, and you don't. So, it's Hebrews 2.2. 2. It says this, Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Basically, he's saying, Every sin got punished. Does that make you want to go back to the old covenant? Or would you rather have what's behind door number two, Monty? I will remember their sins no more. I'll take what's behind door number two. 
the new covenant. It's a better covenant with better promises. Think about it. My reference to Monty, only those, again, 50 and older will get it. Think about it. If you don't embrace this third promise, you will naturally tend to distance yourself from a holy God, right? If you don't embrace this third promise, that he remembers our sins no more, you will naturally tend to distance yourself from a holy God. And I think many people who embrace religion over a relationship with God do that for this very reason. They would rather keep the distance of religion rather than relationship. And when I say this, I don't want us to just think about, oh, those people out there and those stuffy religions. We can be the same right here. Our religion can be that we come to church every week. We come to life groups faithfully. We come to Bible studies faithfully. And yet, we maintain distance from God. If that's you, I plead with you to embrace this third promise. There is a forgiveness and a putting away and a cleansing of sin that is ours under the new covenant. That is powerful, great news. You don't have to stay away from God because you feel dirty, okay? He remembers your sins no more. Um, if you're like me, there, there's sin. We all have sin that we wish we could, could never be remembered, that it would simply be blotted out from our memory. But in our humanness, that doesn't happen. And maybe the devil comes alongside you and whispers in your ear, remember that, remember that, remember that time. Well, if you're a part of this new covenant, you can come to God and say, God, do you remember when I did that? And he's like, no, no. Now, it's not like God's memory is failing, like mine is in my old age. Um, but it's because God has chosen not to remember that sin ever again because it's been covered under the blood of Jesus. And I'm talking about the ones I'm going to do today, later, and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Why would someone not want this? I think sometimes it's because um, change is hard. Um, even if our brains tell us the truth that we should embrace these wonderful promises, I think sometimes we'd rather cling to our past because we are comfortable in it. Okay? Um, it's almost like I think of like someone who has an, uh, you know, a really strong addiction to something. They're, they're, that, uh, they're comfortable in that addiction. And let's just say God saves them and they're trying to walk <clears throat> a, new, a new life, a new, new path. They, that's, that's unknown to them. It's like, I don't know what that looks like. I, I, uh, and it could be uncomfortable because it's fear of the unknown. Whereas like, there's no fear in how they lived before because it's, um, they, they know that. They're, they're comfortable in it. Um, and, and I feel like that's <clears throat> sometimes why we don't want to even embrace these blessings and benefits of the new covenant, okay? Because, because we just are comfortable in, 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 in this, like I said earlier, this cycle, this um, the circle that... that, that that we're in of like, we feel guilt, we feel shame, um, and, and we're comfortable in that. So we don't want to just go, I'm free. I'm, I'm going to, I am serving you, Lord, today. I'm not perfect. I thank you. I praise you that you remember my sins no more. I'm going to serve you with all my heart today. Um, well, the writer of Hebrews knows this, and, 
And I think maybe this is why he closed with letting them know that, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And like I said, <clears throat> I think it's just interesting that the temple and the priesthood and all of that system was destroyed just a few years later. Now they, they, they wouldn't have anything to go back to anyway. In other words, because a new covenant had been established, we need to let the old covenant vanish away. Not in what we learn from it, not in how it instructs us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is instructing us plenty from it, right? But it should no longer be our measure of our relationship with God. No, we were made to relate to God on the basis of a new covenant. So let me end with this. If you are part of the new covenant, these promises belong to you. From the moment you put your complete and total confidence in Jesus, when you trusted that his death on the cross was all sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins, you have a transformed heart, a heart that desires to please the Lord. You have a special relationship with God. You have complete and total forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. I want to ask a question. I want you to be totally honest with yourself this morning before God. Ask yourself, do I have those three things? Is my heart transformed? Do I have a special relationship with God? Do I really have that cleansing of sin? Now, if you look at your own heart and you say, I don't have those three things, but I sure do want them, then come to God today and say, Lord Jesus, I want to trust you fully and completely today. I want to turn from my unbelief and put my faith wholly in you for the forgiveness of my sins. And if you do that today, please let someone know you will have become a member of the new covenant and all the blessings and promises of the new covenant are yours, including participating in communion in just a few minutes. But here's the other aspect, and this might be far more common in this room. You are part of the new covenant You've put your trust in Jesus. You know something of these benefits. But to be honest, right here, right now, that transformation doesn't seem real. Right here, right now, that real relationship with God seems very distant. Right here, right now, your sinful past keeps hanging over your head like a disgusting cloud. Then what are you to do? You need encouragement. Because discouragement is, is ruling your life. Um, I heard this kind of definition of encouragement. Encouragement is putting courage in you. Discouragement is taking courage from you. And God wants us to have courage. That's what I'm doing this morning. I'm doing my best to put courage in you this morning. Um, you know the key to courage is? How much are these promises with you on a daily basis? Okay, Um, well, before I get to that, let me share that that I know God wants us to be courageous. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. You who are members of the new covenant have high callings on your lives, right? We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. That's huge. 
We are called to be disciple makers in Matthew 28. That is a tall task. We're called to be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, good workers, good citizens. And we need courage to live out these callings. Um, but earlier I made the statement that the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage these Jewish believers to persevere and not turn back to their old ways by explaining that in all reality what we have is better, that we have a better covenant and we have better promises. Um, and where I was trying to go about that <clears throat> with courage is, um, if you remember uh, in the book of Joshua, right? Joshua needed courage. Here, they had been led by Moses for years and years, and Moses is going to die. And, um, and first God tells Moses to, you know, to encourage Joshua. But then throughout the book of Joshua, God is encouraging um, Joshua. And you know how he encourages them? With promises. Over and over again. You'll see God asked Joshua to do something, and then he'll give him a promise. Um, I mean, the ones that you know mostly, be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But as you go through, there will be other things that he, that he asks them to do, and there will be a promise. And I think the key to courage is how much are these promises with you on a, a daily basis. And we've got three great promises right here in this passage. And I think how we can encourage ourselves is these promises need to become life for you. If you need to pour over them, if you need to memorize them, if you need to just repeat them to yourself and to embrace them, they need to become your life. Um, Peter even talks about that in 2 Peter 1. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Um, God has given us these promises so that we can walk victoriously, so that we can walk courageously. We just need to um, make these promises our life. We need to embrace them um, <clears throat> on a daily basis. Well, today as we celebrate communion, which reminds us of the inauguration of the new covenant initiated by our Lord Jesus himself. Let us be especially grateful for his precious and very great promises that we are partakers of, that we just talked about, as members of the new covenant. And I invite all members of the new covenant to join with us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. So <clears throat> let's go to the Lord in prayer. Deacons can come forward, the music team can come forward as I'm praying. And, um, and then after that, um, we'll hand out the bread and the, and the cup. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your better promises. And um, I'm just glad that we are in Hebrews 8 today and that maybe there are some who just really needed to be encouraged to hear these better promises, God, to, <clears throat> to have courage put into them, God. So for any here that are members of the new covenant but who are not experienced the fullness of the promises, I pray that you will help them to press into you, to make these promises a part of their life, that these 
that these promises will be life to them, God. I, I feel like well, you said that you gave us these, you gave us promises that we might be partakers of the divine nature. Um, and all we have to do, God, is you said, draw near to God and you will draw near to us. I pray that you would help us draw near to you and to trust what you say, to believe, to believe these promises, God, to stand on them. I think of that song, Standing on the Promises. It's just, it's one thing to just, to not, to not have just head knowledge of these promises, God. But when I think of like teaching them to obey all that I commanded you, I think what you're saying is, <clears throat> here's these promises. Now, how are you going to act? How is your life going to, how are you going to live based on these promises? And Lord, I, I feel like you've, one way we can live is we can live just freely, wholeheartedly, give our whole selves to you. You've, you, you've given us the Holy Spirit. Um, you're with us. You're never going to leave us and forsake us. We have a personal relationship with you. And you remember our sins no more. I mean, I don't even know what else we need. Um, it's just amazing. And God, I thank you that even this morning we get to, um, I thank you for um, instituting this um, uh, <clears throat> ordinance of communion, Lord, that we can, at least in our setting here, on a monthly basis, come to you and, and remember these things. And remember that what we're celebrating is the inauguration uh, um, an initiation of the new covenant by you and, and what that means for us. And just, I, I pray that this morning we would, it would even be more meaningful to us because of these blessings and benefits that we receive because of the new covenant. So we just thank you, Lord. And I just um, pray if there's anyone here that is not a member of the new covenant that wants to be, Lord, that they would cry out to you this morning and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you with all my heart. Um, and they can experience these wonderful promises themselves. God, I'm just so grateful this morning. Um, I, I just am, am humbled that, that I get to be a part of the new covenant that that um, I didn't live in a time being under the old covenant, but I live in a time where I can be a partaker of the new covenant. Just It's a blessing. It's unbelievable, and I'm grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.